Well, as you can see from my initial slide and my title, at least a sub-theme of our focus today will be feet. I have a brother-in-law. I'll, I'll let him rename, remain nameless, but he wears a badge for work. And he has a aversion to feet, almost even his own. His nephews ask him, if he's ever seen his own feet because of his concern that they be covered with socks at least. I'm convinced that if, uh, if he was in, in some sort of a chase with someone and they just took off their shoes, he may just let them go. Huh? I, I, hope, I hope none of you have quite as much of, a, of an aversion to, to, to feet. You know, for the first six or 12 months of our life, that's kind of what feet look like, right? Oh, baby's feet, and they're, they're, they're just uh, uh, adorable. However, after that, beginning about the time we start to use them, they become much more functional than appealing, don't they? Our feet begin to take on the wear and tear of a lifetime of use. The unused feet of a baby are just precious, but much beyond that, well, I, I won't speak for anyone but myself this morning and tell you a little something about me. From as early as April 21st, 1982, the day that I was born, my feet were something of a concern. As doctors and nurses in the delivery room do, after confirming I was breathing well on my own, they noted that I had ten fingers and ten toes, and everything looked fine in terms of amount, but there was some immediate concern about direction. You see, my right foot much more than my left but both feet being somewhat affected, the doctors soon told my parents that I had what they called club foot. It wasn't quite as pronounced as that picture in terms of being completely turned in, but there was a general bent inward instead of outward. In the U.S., statistics say this is a condition of about one, some say up to three in 1,000 babies who are born. It's a congenitive, all right, a congenital foot deformity that affects the muscles, the bones, the tendons, and blood vessels while the baby is developing in the foot and causes the, the front half especially of an affected foot to turn inward. And so there were various treatments that doctors suggested. I had an orthopedist. I think probably before I left the hospital, who I was assigned to, Dr. Buck was his name. And I, as I grew older, I can remember certain things. There were special shoes that I wore and braces that were used. Eventually, and I meant to check with my mom, I don't remember exactly how old I was, old enough to have some faint memory in which I was hospitalized and surgery was performed to break the toes on my right foot and reset them to try to bend, uh, especially those, those front, what would that be, metacarpal, something like that, more to the outside than the inside. And it was, it was moderately effective, and it, it improved. 
I still, and, and you may, he, me may have even seen it at some point. I don't know if it's, it's almost maybe just uh, subconscious where I, I will kind of turn my, my own foot myself. So it, uh, so it kind of points outward. I, I do know that the doctors told my mom and dad early on in terms of being a soccer player like my boys are, I didn't have much shot at that because they tell you to kick it with the, the inside of your foot. And, and for me, that requires even from kind of the knee on uh, a real, uh, a real uh, effort to do that. Elijah told me that if I would have learned to kick a ball, I would have had a natural curve to the ball. I just wouldn't have known where it was going. So, uh, and, and then for, for me as well, and probably as a result of the surgery, my right foot is about half size smaller than my left foot is. So when I try on shoes, I really only try on the left foot because I know if the left foot fits, the right foot will, will, will fit too. As I was researching it, I did, I did find out, I never really looked into it, I just kind of lived with it. There is some suspicion that as you get older and you've spent a lifetime walking on, on a foot with, a, with, with a, an, an, an inward turn, sometimes your mobility as a more elderly person is difficult. So I have that to look forward to, right? <laughs> Take good care of that chair, Bill. I may, I may need it uh, at, at some point. Okay. <laughs> no, but, uh, you, you know, I was, I was thinking about that. I have told you in the last 11 or 12 years a lot about me, a lot about my experiences, a lot about my family, a lot about what I think. I don't think I've ever told you that. Huh? It's been part of my life for since the time I was born. We don't, we don't talk about feet much, do we? We want to take a look at a passage this morning from John 13 where feet figure very prominently. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you, should, you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who had sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them.
Did you know that John is the only gospel writer who includes this particular story? It's one that we emphasize, especially around Holy Week and Monday Thursday, but only John records it. The timing in relation even to the meal itself seems a little bit out of order, doesn't it? Jesus didn't wash the disciples' feet when they first arrived at the upper room. Instead, it's in the, it's in the middle of the meal. It catches them a little off guard for a number of reasons. The timing and then the one who was performing the act of service. Jesus stands up, removes his cloak, wraps himself in a towel, basically putting on the uniform, if you will, of a servant. And then one by one, washes the disciples' dirty feet. It catches us off guard, too, if we stop and think about what is going on in that moment and the role that Jesus is intentionally putting himself in. The act of foot washing is not exactly what we would expect in the midst of the sacred supper, right? The last supper that Jesus was commemorating with his disciples as the cross, the shadow of the cross, loomed directly in front of at least his mind's eye. Part of the teaching of this passage is for us to engage in tender acts of servanthood. Sometimes acts that come at the expense even of our own dignity. I mentioned to you last week that Last week would have been uh, my father-in-law's birthday. We had a great time together on Sunday afternoon with Dana's family. October 4th was the day that he went home to be with the Lord. He had just days prior been diagnosed with cancer. And uh, the treatment plan was still very much being laid out. In fact, it was going to be on Monday that he went and met with the oncologist. And on Saturday night into Sunday morning, he passed away. So he was, of course, there in his home. And uh, I, I, won't, I won't go into a, a significant amount of detail, but as typically happens when someone passes away in their home, even, you know, uh, there was, when, I, when I got there, there was blood on the carpet. Dana and I went over there in the middle of the night, Sunday morning, Saturday night. My mom came and stayed with our kids. There were two dear friends, Bob and Karen Supers, who were already there, beat us there. Bill and Phyllis Olbert, they had known Bob and Karen, my in-laws, for ever since Bob and Karen moved to the U.S. Dana and, and, uh, and, and their girls were great friends. In fact, one of their daughters was in our wedding and so on and so forth. They're great, great folk. When we were getting ready to go home to have a conversation that I did not want to have with three little kids, tell them that Papa was with Jesus then. They were absolute, Bill and Phyllis were absolutely insistent to my mother-in-law, a very newly uh, uh, positioned widow. And they wanted to help her clean her carpets. They said, you're going to have family come over here. You're going to have 
grandkids come over here. We do not want them coming over and having this here. So they went home and they got their carpet cleaner from home. And I think there was a trip to Lowe's and so on. And I went back there that afternoon, probably seven or eight hours later. The carpet was clean. Last year I was with Bill and Philip. And I mentioned that to them. I've never forgotten. I mean, it's only been two years, but that made such an impression on me. I said to them, kind of privately away from my mother-in-law, I said, hey, you remember that? You remember that morning? Yeah, we remember the morning, Jonathan. You remember what you did when you helped clean up the mess? When I was working on this sermon and I wrote that sentence, sometimes servanthood requires us to give up a portion of our dignity. Sometimes it will be messy. Sometimes it will be cleaning carpets. Sometimes it will be cleaning feet. Jesus is our example who said, blessed are you not only if you know these things, but you do them. What will that mean for us? There are some denominations that still practice the the actual uh, uh, physical act of cleaning each other's feet. That's not our usual practice. And I think probably maybe, maybe, the, the purpose behind it not being our usual practice is that, that, it, that it can't be constrained just to that. What that means to enter into servanthood in a way in which we are able to lay aside some of our own personal dignity, it, it may be something very different. Within the gospel, we observe Jesus perform this act that is simultaneously unexpected, tender, and powerly. One by one, Jesus kneels at the feet of each disciple and washes their feet. Maybe he spoke individual words to each one as he performed the service. Maybe just a whisper under his breath as he took the right foot and then the left, dumped water and scrubbed and dried them off. Knowing the nearness of the end of his time with these 12 men, maybe he said a word or two to acknowledge to them the ways that he had touched, the ways that they had touched his life and inspired in a way even his own ministry. Maybe no words were spoken. Maybe they didn't need to be. Of course, the act itself would speak volumes. As he washed and dried those feet, though, there were personal markers of each man's life. Calluses, dirt of the day pressed deep into cracked skin, the feet that showed the wear and tear of walking miles and miles over grassy hillsides with Jesus, or or even the dusty, palm-strewn pathway into Jerusalem that they'd walked just a few days prior. Kneeling before them that night. Among other things, Jesus acknowledged the ways in which each of the twelve had walked with him to that point in his earthly journey. He also likely, at least inwardly, considered the path that lay before each in the days and months and years that lay ahead. Jesus knew that each set of those feet 
would head off in vastly different directions. One pair, just moments later, would be dismissed and go straight to the authorities. Most would scurry off in terror at the thought of being associated with one about to be crucified. A couple pairs of those feet would soon return to the salt water shores of the Sea of Galilee to fish. A few pairs within the next few days would race one another to check on the reports of an empty tomb. All this lay ahead for those 12 sets of feet that Jesus washed that holy Thursday night. They had 12 diverse and difficult paths to journey in the days ahead. But in those moments, in the middle of their supper, they were treated with care by the hands who had formed those feet in the first place. They were scrubbed and cleansed in an unexpected and remarkable way. In some ways, they were being readied for the journeys that lay ahead. The man doing the work, the man whose hands cleansed their dirty feet, apparently from the passage, was the only one in the room to not have his feet washed that night. The dirt on his feet would soon become the least of his worries because those feet were made for a cross. So in this last act of service to his disciples before his crucifixion, Jesus, the servant Savior, displayed a tenderness toward them that we are called to emulate as his followers. May we, may we receive his grace to follow in his footsteps. Amen.